What do we still not know about Attica, the 1971 prison uprising, and why does it still matter today? Heather Ann Thompson will join us to talk about her new book, Blood in the Water. Law enforcement goes in there uh, with guns blazing. Uh, They took off their identifying badges before they went in. They wrote statements that were patently false when it was all over and done with. How much has our understanding of neuroscience depended on one brain? Seth Mnookin is here to talk about his review of the new book, Patient HM. An enormous amount of what we know today about memory um, and about how memory works and where memory resides in the brain stems from work that was done on, on HM. Plus, we'll talk about what we and other people are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. On September 9, 1971, more than 1,000 inmates at the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York took over a prison, holding guards and employees hostage to protest years of poor conditions and mistreatment. Four days later, armed state troopers and correction officers retook the prison, killing 39 prisoners and hostages and wounding hundreds of others. Heather Ann Thompson is a historian and scholar. Her book, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy has new information about that terrible event. Heather, thanks for being with us. Hey. So this is really a a shocking book in so many ways. Um, But it's also shocking that not everyone knows about Attica, remembers it. Um, I imagine that's part of why you wrote the book. Um, But for those who only think of, you know, Al Pacino and Dog Day Afternoon or um, have no idea what Attica is, tell us about the Attica prison. Where was it? When was it constructed? What were things like there? Well, in the fall of 1971, almost 1,300 prisoners uh, launched a real civil rights rebellion, a human rights rebellion within the Attica State Correctional Facility in upstate New York. And it very quickly became not just national news but international news because it was televised. The prisoners invited the media in. They invited observers in. And they had also taken hostages to ensure that the state would negotiate with them rather than just storm the prison immediately. And in that very, very important rebellion, the demands were quite basic, quite basic human rights demands. And there was negotiations for four days, seeming that they would continue until there was some sort of peaceful resolution. At least that's what the observers had hoped. That's what the prisoners and the hostages had hoped. And the Attica uprising becomes really uh, headline news because the state of New York decides suddenly to retake the prison with tremendous force. The uh, upshot of that was uh, many people killed, uh, nearly, you know, almost 130 very severely wounded. And then Attica becomes sort of a mystery to most of the nation and the world because the state works very, very hard to kind of make it go away when it was very clear that the retaking had been such a disaster. I assume the retaking was not televised. No, the retaking was not, although interestingly, because there were so many uh, townspeople and media and um, folks around, of course, you can hear the retaking, you can hear the gunfire, and the state police uh, itself actually filmed uh, a great deal of the retaking. Notably, later, 
uh, this becomes significant because while there is much taping the police do um, and you can hear shooting, you never see anyone shoot anybody. Who made that decision to retake the prison in that manner? Well, I think ultimately, of course, it's Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor at the time. Um, Ultimate responsibility lies with him. He had been advised by his closest advisors um, from his own administration on the scene that um, it was uh, wise, it was time to retake the prison. But yet his own people that were serving roles as observers were at the same time making clear that if he did this, there would be a massacre, and that was their words. Um, They had very much hoped that negotiations would continue. Now, looking at this in the context of the times, it was 1971. This was not a happy, peaceful time in America, but was the Attica prison uprising unusual? Were there other prisons that were were going through this, or was there a fear that this would sort of uh, set off a cascade of similar uprisings? Well, there's no question that this was a tumultuous period. This is really at the zenith of the civil rights movement. There's rebellions going on everywhere, including in prisons, particularly in the California prison system. Um, And certainly Rockefeller would have argued that this was, he had to stop this before it spread like wildfire. But what is really notable about this prison uh, protest was that everybody on the scene, including those who uh, were not, uh, you know, were not prisoners themselves, were very clear that the conditions were horrendous, that there needed to be remedy. The hostages themselves inside of the yard go on the media and say say to the governor, you know, please help these people. And basically end this peacefully. So his decision to draw a line in the sand was not a good one considering what was at stake in that particular uprising. I think that uh, we've heard and continue to hear many stories today about terrible prison conditions, and yet it's still shocking to hear some of the stories um, about what took place in Attica. I mean, just one statistic, the state spent 63 cents per prisoner per day for food. What was it like at Attica for a prisoner? Well, one of the things that might shock a lot of readers when they read the Attica story is that the conditions are so terrible and there's such an effort before the prison protest to have this solved peacefully. There's numerous letters written. There's really an enormous effort on the part of prisoners. Just please help us solve this situation. There's there's not sufficient food. Uh, We have one roll of toilet paper for an entire month. The rules are arbitrary, there's severe racial discrimination, and I could go on. Um, but of course, what one of the greatest ironies of Attica is that despite this great protest, because of the way it was ended, and because the nation is really told a series of lies about why Attica uh, ended as brutally and as bloodily as it did, the nation becomes very hostile to prisoners and to prison reform. And indeed, one of the greatest ironies of Attica is it touches off this incredible backlash to civil rights in general, but prisoner rights in particular. So today's prisons are in many respects uh, far worse than they were uh, in 1971 when a rebellion was deemed necessary to improve them. Why write about Attica now? Why revisit this story? Well, it's interesting. The book took me 13 years um, through no choice of my own. It was because the state had made it so difficult to get the records with regard to Attica. This is still an ongoing uh, an ongoing mystery because so many of the records are just simply inaccessible. So I started the book really at the height of our own prison buildup. Um, and the fact that it is ending in this moment, the book is finishing in this moment when we are once again 
revisiting this issue of prisoner rights and this issue of police killings without accountability. It's really quite kind of extraordinary, but, but uh, although accidental, um, the book took me much longer to write than I'd hoped. The book is also embargoed. Um, and for those listeners who don't quite understand what that means, it means that, you know, the, that the media can't write about it until uh, the publishing date, because usually because there's sensitive material or something newsworthy. Why was this book embargoed? Well, quite frankly, because uh, through the journey of writing the book, I finally was able through completely <laughs> fortuitous uh, reasons, I was able to uncover things about the Attica Rebellion that nobody had known. In particular, the depth of the uh, state's willingness to make sure that, that prisoners um, were held responsible, but the police who had created so much trauma there were not the lengths to which the New York State Police went to to make sure that its own officers were protected, even when they had engaged in uh, very serious wrongdoing, if not outright criminal acts. And I uncovered that. I made a very, very painful decision to write the story as it was, not as, you know, as one would have hoped it would have been. And so it's very controversial. And the state and the, the state police in particular uh, have worked very hard to keep those records closed about Attica. And so the embargo uh, was in part because um, it was important that the book go forward and that no one try to, you know, essentially try to stop it before it was published. What is the controversy so many decades later? What is it that they're trying to cover up? Well, I think it depends on, you know, who the actors are. But I think that the greatest controversy is has to do with uh, law enforcement. Um, law enforcement goes in there. Uh, with guns blazing. Uh, they took off their identifying badges before they went in. They brought in weapons that nobody had cataloged. They wrote statements that were patently false when it was all over and done with uh, to justify their shooting. It was clear that their shooting, the level of their shooting was not justified. And they killed both hostages and prisoners in this complete free-for-all of a retaking. So the controversy, frankly, is that there is no statute of limitations on murder. There is always the possibility of filing civil rights suits when, uh, when it's so clear that people have been targeted because of their race. And Attica is rife with stories like that. And I think that the book will undoubtedly make folks uncomfortable who for, you know, 45 years have kept hoping that the story would just go away. It will also, I think, probably have um, an impact on the reputation, the legacy of Nelson Rockefeller, who for a long time, people had this nostalgia for him as the last liberal Republican. And yet between his uh, mandatory uh, drug sentences and, and the Rockefeller laws and this, it sounds like his his record on law enforcement was pretty terrible. Well, I think that's right. And I think that the connections between the Attica Rebellion and the facts that Nelson Rockefeller then passes the Rockefeller drug laws, which, of course, are then adopted countrywide uh, and create one of the most massive criminal justice buildups ever in American history is really worth us all thinking about. And I think the other thing that this book will hopefully get us thinking about is this question of equal justice under the law as we face it again today. The fact is that Americans assume when members of law enforcement are not indicted uh, in a given shooting or not convicted when they are rarely, rarely indicted, uh, the public assumes that that's because there was no evidence or because they were innocent. And one of the things that Attica so painfully shows us 
is that we have this long history where we do not have equal justice under the law, and that means that time and again people don't get indicted or don't get convicted, not because they did not create trauma or commit a criminal act, but because they've been protected so thoroughly uh, throughout this process. You make a very convincing case for the ongoing importance of Attica. Heather, thank you so much. Thank you so much. The book again is Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy by Heather Ann Thompson. John Williams is here now with our final installment of our summer reading uh, voice memos. John? Yeah, we've had so much fun with this all summer getting um, you, our listeners, to send in some of your most memorable reading experiences during summer's past or present. And we have a few more this week to close up with. Let's hear the first one. This is Nancy, and I am from Atlanta, Georgia, and here is my summer reading story. Having dyslexia, summer reading was a huge chore. I remember The Wind in the Willows was required reading early on, and my well-meaning mother took one look at the book and said I didn't have to trudge through it. I was relieved, but also wrongly assumed that reading was not for me and never would be. I did almost anything I could to avoid reading books and made a point of taking only the absolute minimum required English classes, even in college. It wasn't until I was out of college that for some crazy reason I picked up For Whom the Bell Tolls by Hemingway. I was blown away. That was 25 years ago, and I have been an obsessive reader, although not necessarily a fast reader, ever since. I feel like Nancy Smith offers a lesson in why there should not be assigned summer reading hmm. in school. We never had it, and I feel like it's it way to suck out all the joy. I didn't really have it either until I think between my junior and senior year of high school, maybe I had to read a book, but that yeah. was it. I, I feel like it, it absolutely turns reading into something that you have to do as opposed to something that you want to do. Yeah, absolutely, and in the time when you're supposed to have like a little bit of a break from school and have just be a kid. Down with summer reading. Down with summer reading. We have another heartwarming (laughs) one here. I'm Shelley Brisbane from Austin, Texas. When I was 18, back when books on tape were literally books on tape, four high school friends decided to make me one. I'm visually impaired and I've always been an avid reader. And these friends knew that I was a science fiction fan too. They wanted me to read Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy, so they recorded it and presented it to me in two shoeboxes full of cassette tapes. At 18, I don't think I had the words to express my gratitude. I love the book, but I'll always remember the thoughtfulness and the specificity of what my friends did for me. I love that both of these women had challenges to reading that they overcame. Yes, and and such nice friends. I mean, my friends and girlfriends in high school only made me mixtapes. That's right. That's, <laughs> and that's and so like, easy. There's, like, there's all kinds of hidden messages in mixtapes. Yeah. <laughs> like you can put in, you know, angry asides. All right, let's hear one more. One last one. This is Katherine Graham in Wilmington, North Carolina. My favorite summer reading memory is from 1972. I came home from college and told my parents, everyone has been to Europe except me. So my father took us all. My sisters and I had a copy of The Godfather, and we read it throughout the trip, especially the part about Sonny at the wedding. We read that a lot. My father said, put down that damn book and look at the Alps. On the way home, my little cousin threw it out of the car window on the New Jersey turnpike. 
That's awesome. <laughs> so somewhere still there are the last remains of that copy of The Godfather somewhere <laughs> off of the turnpike. And I, I totally identify with that idea of like when you're traveling and you're reading something really great and you're like, oh, wait, it's the Great Wall. I should look. <laughs> maybe maybe look up from the book like people look up from their phones these days. Every once in a while. I just want to thank all our listeners for sending in such great memos all summer. And um, we'll try to come up with another fun project for them soon. I know. Really. What's it going to be? Is it going to be the, the book I most hated that was a Signed to me, but grew to love. Maybe we'll come up with a couple of other ideas and poll our listeners about what they want to talk All to right. us about. Stay tuned. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. Seth Manukin joins us now from Cambridge. He is the author of The Panic Virus, most recently, and this week in the book review, reviews Patient HM, a story of memory, madness, and family secrets by Luke Dittrich. Seth, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So who was Patient H.M.? Patient H.M. was probably the most famous person in the history of neurology. Um, He was someone who had very severe epilepsy and in the mid-1950s had his medial temporal lobes removed. And as a result, he was no longer able to form new memories. Um, He couldn't remember more than 20 or 30 seconds in the past. And for the next half century, really, there were hundreds and hundreds of tests and experiments done on him and an enormous amount of what we know today about memory um, and about how memory works and where memory resides in the brain uh, stems from work that was done on on HM. So HM, whose name was Henry Mollison, it sounds like he's in in a certain way like the Henrietta Lacks of a lot of brain research. Uh, yeah, that's not a bad that's not a bad comparison. Certainly, um, you know there there have been other famous amnesiac patients, but because this was the result of surgery and very specific surgery, there wasn't the type of kind of global brain injury that might make it harder to figure out why a patient was having difficulty with A or B or C. Now, when Henry Mollison died in 2008 and his name was finally revealed to the public, it was it was a big news story and there were books that were written about them. What's different about this book? So Luke Dittrich, the author, is actually the grandson of the surgeon uh, who performed the operation on, on HM. And it was a controversial operation at the time because the surgeon did not know what part of the brain was causing Mollison's seizures. Um, and so basically he just went in there and took a guess and, and took out his temporal lobes, which a lot of people were pretty shocked by. And Dittrich makes some pretty pretty severe accusations against his grandfather, or at least insinuates that this was something that he might have been doing to sort of try and get some glory for himself by being able to map a new part of the brain. He's also, Dietrich is also, uh, his mother was best friends and neighbors growing up with the MIT researcher, Suzanne Corkin, who oversaw uh, three and a half, four decades of research on on HM uh, and is the researcher who did more work than anyone else on him. So this is a a very personal story for Dittrich as well as as being a very reported story. And that researcher, Suzanne Corkin, also died recently. Yeah, she just died in May of, of liver cancer. So very recently. I think she actually died probably in between when the book went to press and, and when it came out. And was she involved in the creation of this book? Did he interview her? Was she part of it? He did interview her, but it was, by all accounts, a contentious 
interview in a contentious relationship. She was always very protective of Mollison, and from the outset, and this initially started as a magazine article that Dittrich wrote for, uh, I believe, for Esquire, and from the outset, she did not want to share a lot of details, did not like the sort of informality with which Dittrich was referring to the patient. And uh, some of those interviews have actually been, the, the audio have been posted online, and it's clear that this was a, a pretty contentious relationship. Okay, so, and there's been some controversy since the book came out um, about the book itself and about his treatment of Corkin in the book. What, what's the controversy and how valid are the criticisms? Dittrich raises um, a couple of really interesting points about about Corkin. One is uh, a question of informed consent and whether someone who is in Mollison's condition could give informed consent. Um, and uh, he did. He was the only person signing his consent forms for about a 12-year period. Another is the fact that Corkin, for whatever reason, told Dittrich that she was destroying her files on HM because she didn't want the data to be misinterpreted. And that's a really, really shocking thing to do and a shocking thing to say. So those are two of the, the, the big ones. There are some other questions that have come up as well. But Corkin's colleagues at MIT and, and elsewhere uh, have really very strongly rallied to her defense and said that there's no evidence that she destroyed any uh, any any data at all. That's been one of the things they've really been focusing on. I was just going to say, if this story is sounding familiar, by the way, to our listeners, it's uh, maybe in part because the book itself was excerpted in uh, by my colleagues at the magazine. Um, so that's why some some parts of this may sound a bit familiar. It was it was the magazine excerpt that that occasioned this sort of outcry on on the part of Corkin's colleagues. Um, it, this it it seems to me is an instance in which um, you have different parties in a dispute sort of talking past each other, and the scientists are saying that Dittrich just doesn't understand how science is done. Dittrich is, I think, rightly saying that um, the scientists don't understand how, how journalism is done. Certainly, I think he had an obligation to print the fact that she told him that she was destroying files. There's no way other than taking her at her word that he could confirm that because First of all, you can't prove a, a, a negative. You can't prove that she didn't destroy files. Um, but he obviously can't go and, and inspect, you know, five decades of files that, that he didn't have access to. So I think one thing that's unfortunate is Corkin did recently die. Uh, and I think that makes it more difficult because there's a sense that he or she's getting some pretty intense criticism and, and is not around to respond. But I hope that in time, some of the questions that the book raises can be looked at a little bit more dispassionately, because I think there are some really crucial, crucial points that Dittrich raises. I actually want to go on a little tangent there because you, you brought it up, this idea that scientists will criticize journalists who write about science and, and, and vice versa, um, because you teach science journalism at MIT and uh, have written uh, a lot of science journalism yourself. Um, I'm assuming that that is a, a frequent point of contention um, when it comes to regular journalists writing about the work that scientists do. Yeah, and I think actually you're 100% correct. And I think some of it stems from this feeling um, from, from some scientists who are written about that science journalists should sort of be on their side, mm -hmm. um, a, a kind of really fundamental misunderstanding of what journalism is. And I think the reason that comes about is because journalists who write about science a lot 
are pro-science in the sense that they're pro-facts and pro-truth. So there's obviously a lot of pseudoscience and people who don't believe in science. Or don't understand it. Or don't understand science, exactly. But that doesn't mean that it's a journalist's responsibility to make sure that science is always portrayed uh, in a good light or that it's infallible because it's it's obviously not. And so that is something that, that comes up uh, a fair amount. And one thing that I think is interesting is Dietrich is not someone who comes from the science writing community. Um, and I think it's interesting that he's the person raising these questions. For me, it makes me think about how just whenever you have a reporter who's covering a beat really closely, those relationships can get tricky because obviously you are writing about that person, but you also get to know the person and depend on that person for tips and access and everything like that. If you look in the last couple of years at some really big stories in science, um, a lot of them have been written by people who are newer to that community or don't have, you know, 10 or 20 years experience. Another example is a series of really, really severe sexual harassment allegations uh, at universities around the country. That, and those stories have been broken in large part by a reporter at BuzzFeed, um, who's a phenomenal reporter. You Who know, is that? We should call out that person. It's, it's Azeen Garashi at BuzzFeed. And, and she's really has been doing phenomenal work. And the thing that's striking about that is a lot of those stories were not exactly hidden. I mean, these were sort of open secrets in these labs and in some cases in the entire community that they were happening. And yet it took someone who writes about science a lot, but in some sense is coming from the outside to bring those to light. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that in, in Patient HM. As a reader and also as someone who practices science journalism, did you feel like Luke Dietrich's personal ties to this story, his grandfather being the surgeon who operated on Henry Mollison and his mother having been good friends with Suzanne Corkin, the researcher um, who uh, worked on his case. Did you feel like that added to the story? Did it detract? Did it make you feel suspect? Did you, I mean, overall, did you feel like you were getting a, an important or a different point of view or insight here? Yeah, I did, actually. I, I think that it definitely added to the story, um, because especially with his grandfather, he's grappling with some really, really difficult stuff. And, you know, he, he, he compares his grandfather's actions to those of, of Nazi researchers during World War II. So it's always clear he doesn't try and obviously hide the personal connection. And even when he writes about Corkin, he doesn't try and pretend that they did not have a contentious relationship. So I think he does a very good job of sort of laying all his cards on the table. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, even when he talks about his, his grandfather, his grandfather and his grandmother got divorced and his grandmother at one point was institutionalized. And he talks about that relationship as well. So I, I always had the feeling in the book that his personal connection was very intensely impacting what he was writing and, and his perspective on everything. But I also always felt that he was right up front about that. And I think that added a, a, a dimension to the book that's really important. All right. For prospective readers who are considering reading this book, who maybe read the the uh, excerpt and want to know what the reading experience of the book is like, as you said, Luke Dittrich is not really a science writer. He is a, a journalist. He writes for Esquire. What is the book like as a reading experience? I mean, does it? Does, how does he tell a story? 
He's a very, very engaging storyteller. I had some problems with the book, and um, like a lot of books, I think it could have been significantly shorter than it is. Um, Would that all books were? (laughs) Yes, um, except for mine, which (laughs) we need more space. Um, But it was never a book that I was laboring to read. I I read it through very quickly and then read it through again, and uh, even on the second reading was, was sort of turning pages as quickly as I could. So there are, there are some pretty, there are some big problems with the book and there are parts that feel kind of overstuffed, but overall, I think for readers are going to find it pretty engaging. All right. Well, for those readers who want to engage, the book again is called Patient HM, A Story of Memory, Madness and Family Secrets by Luke Dittrich and Seth Manukin, our reviewer. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. If you like hearing from authors and reviewers on the podcast, help us spread the word. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and rate the show or leave us a comment, preferably favorable. We'd love to hear what you think. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Greg Coles and John Williams join us now to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Wow, that was very uh, in sync. We are all on the same page. First day of school. That's right. We're all ready to get back. Uh, John, what are you reading? Uh, I read two novels this week, one of which everyone has heard of and the other probably not many have. Um, The one that not many have is called Absolute Beginners. It's by a British writer named Colin McInnes. Wait, is that the one that was turned into a movie? It was turned into a movie, yeah, which I haven't seen. And Patsy the, Kensett and David Bowie. Yeah, the big David Bowie song. And the friend who recommended this to me is British and, and hates the movie, but <laughs> loves the book. Uh, it's kind of a cult classic in Britain. I don't think many people here have even heard of it. It's about a teenager in the late 1950s in London who knows all these sort of underground characters. And it's really about, you know, the 50s kind of turning into the 60s. And uh, there are race riots and there are jazz clubs and there's a lot of humor. And there's also a lot of great writing about sort of the consolations of living in a city um, when you're young and feeling a little adrift. Um, It actually, it has sort of echoes of, you know, the American version might be the catcher in the rye, but this is a little more for adults. Uh, You can't really see young school kids reading this book. It's a little racier. Um, There are some outdated slang about race relations, but that's kind of the point of the book is that, you know, it's really about him sympathizing with the underclass in London and living in, in these kind of dodgy neighborhoods but that he loves and and that he gets a lot from their culture um so that was that was a fun read and i'm glad i finally got to it the other book that i finally got to uh was the great gatsby which is obviously very late in life (laughs) to be reading it um i started it a couple of times when i was much younger probably including whenever it was assigned in school one of the things I realized, because there's not much to say, obviously, about it's pretty good. Right. Um, Is your junior high school takeaway. teacher listening now to know that you never actually finished that assignment? Yeah, retroactively get a C on that paper instead of a B or whatever I got. Um the writing is amazing, and the, the last page in particular, I, I knew the last sentence backwards and forwards before I even read it, of course, uh, but just the last few paragraphs of the book are, are among the best things I've ever read. But I just can't imagine reading this book before I was even in my mid-20s and appreciating it on the level that one you want should. to read one of those paragraphs to us? And see. Sure, absolutely. Well, there's one in particular that I think is, that is incredible. Um, so I think, I think most people know the context. So Sorry, just... we're giving away the ending, people. <laughs> warning, warning. Well, this is the fourth to last paragraph, which I, I, I think I found the most impressive. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy moving glow of a ferry boat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world. 
Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. You know, <laughs> speaking of childhood, I grew up on East Egg, um, and so I always felt like it was just like a town obligation to read and enjoy um, that book. But I now feel bad because I would never look out on the bay and have those sort of thoughts. I grew up, well, <laughs> yeah, who does? It's incredible. I, I grew up near the south shore of Long Island, and we were more into sort of pro wrestling magazines. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know why you didn't read it. Exactly. <laughs> that paragraph actually reminds me of a book that um, draws very much on the influence of the great Gatsby, which is Joseph O'Neill's Netherland. And oh, there's a, a moment in that book where the protagonist is taking a train up the Hudson River Valley mm-hmm. and he's looking at the Hudson and casting his mind back to before it was settled and when the um, Native American tribes lived there That's and right. kind of thinking of it in its uh, pastoral wilderness. And um, it very much uh, kind of it, it, an allusion, I think, to, to that paragraph. Surely, yeah. yeah. What were you reading, Craig? Um, this week I've been reading a book that I picked up kind of out of idle curiosity and I've just gotten completely sucked in as a lot more riveting than I expected it to be. And that's um, Max Frankel's memoir, uh, The Times of My Life, and the subtitle is And My Life at the Times. Max Frankel, uh, of course, is a former executive editor of The New York Times. Uh, and he he spent almost 50 years at the Times, starting out as a reporter and making his way through the editing ranks uh, until he was finally the um, executive editor. And, you know, the times are going through a lot of changes. I was going to say, has anything <laughs> changed since then, Greg? That, that book was published in 1999. And what's fascinating, yes, of course, quite a lot has changed. And, and the times is contending with a lot of cultural change, a lot of technological change right now, trying to figure out a path through, um, obviously, um, the Internet. And um, so things that he never had to think about. And yet, um, toward the end of that book, when he talks about the the problems that he faced at the end of his tenure, the business problems and um, the direction he was trying to take the times in, it's it's remarkable, almost 20 years after he wrote this book, how relevant the stuff that he was going through is to what the Times is uh, going through right mm-hmm. now. He talks about declining advertising, the, the end of classified ad- advertising, basically, because the real estate market had crashed. Um, the shrinking profit margins, um, and the desire to reshape the Times as very much a national and international paper instead of um, just kind of a, a local parochial. You know, he talks about not putting subway derailments on page one. But before he gets <laughs> to all of that, the book opens with his family's desperate escape from Nazi Germany in 1939. Hmm. Um, How old is he was uh, he was born in 1930. I think he's eight years old at the time that all of this starts. Um, it, and he takes you step by step through uh, the the nightmarish bureaucracy of it all. And everyone talks about hmm. the Nazi bureaucracy, but it's just government bureaucracy in general. The steps, the paths that they had to uh, navigate in terms of border crossings, in terms of passports and visas, and kind of nobody wanted them. Um, nobody wanted to claim them. At, so. They, they left with special passports that Poland issued. They were born in a part of what's now, I think, Ukraine. But at the time, in between the wars, there was this whole uh, question of what was Germany, what mm-hmm. was Austria, what was Hungary, what was Poland. And so um, it, it was this kind of no man's land. And Poland finally issued them passports that were 
essentially no man's land passports. They were just white passports, um, that, passports issued to strangers or to guests mm-hmm. um, because they had no country to call their own. Lots of begging and kind of camping out in consulates uh, to finally secure their visas. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really a gripping story um, that sets the tone for this, the Frankel family as outsiders and observers then and um, in big political systems. And it kind of paves the way, makes him kind of born to the task of being a journalist. So it's it's really a, a fascinating book. Pamela, what are you reading this week? Well, I'm going to continue with the London theme um, and actually uh, talk about two book-related things that are not <laughs> actually books. People who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that I um, was reading Les Miserables for quite some time. And one of our podcast listeners actually reached out to me on Twitter, um, and he turned out to be the lead um, in the London production of Les Miserables. So he knew of that of which he spoke. And when he uh, found out that I was in London, he uh, again reached out and my daughter and I went to see the the show. I had already seen it. Um, weirdly, I'd seen it in English, French and Czech, um, but I'd never seen it in London. And so I went with my daughter and afterwards we went uh, backstage and my daughter got to dress up as Javert. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun. So uh, a call out to listener Peter Lockyer. Uh, I don't know how any other podcast listener is going to beat that. Um, <laughs> but I challenge you. It was it was it was truly great. Um, and while in London, I had one other um book slash theater experience, which was went to see the new Harry Potter plays. And uh, (laughs) we are warned to keep the secrets and I would never uh, Mm. violate that. Um, So I won't reveal anything other than to say that at uh, it's two plays. It's quite long. um, It's about six hours maybe of theater. Yeah. Um, And I went with two of my kids um, the day after we arrived in London. I think it was the one thing other than, you know, candy that could (laughs) fight off the jet lag with such uh, efficacy. Um, But we went and we sat through it. And at the end of the first act, it was so awe-inspiring that as the curtain came down, there was an audible, I don't exactly even know how to describe it. It wasn't a gasp. It wasn't a cheer. It was just a sound of awe and delight that <laughs> emanated from the audience. And I've never heard that before, wow. where people just went, wow, essentially, but like with a non-word kind of <laughs> emotional outburst. Is um, that because of the staging or the story itself? or um... It was a total experience. Yeah. It was everything. It was... Um, it's and I go to a lot of theater. It was really a unique experience. So I think I'm hoping even those who have read the book of the script, um, I think that there is value in seeing it on stage. And there are rumors now that it's going to be adapted to film. But uh, for those who can make it to the West End um, or can make it to Broadway when it it better come. Uh, yeah, there aren't plans. I, I think there are plans and they're not finalized right. yet. But it really it was inspiring. That's great. So that's that. Now, uh, very much more down to earth. I am reading um, a British novel. Uh, I bought a bunch of books when I was there. I went to um, two of my favorite bookstores on the planet, Daunt Books and um, Hatchards. And uh, I bought Absolute Beginners at the London Review Bookshop. 
Oh yeah, that, I didn't go to. I know that's also a great book. Shop. A I did not go there. I just wanted a thriller um, and something fun to read because I actually was working quite a bit while I was on vacation. Um, so I only got to read one book, and I didn't even get to finish it. Um, the book is Sophie Hanna's *Woman with a Secret*, um, which is um, part of a kind of ongoing world of thrillers that Hannah's created that um, operate around the same sort of police. Uh, the same group of police detectives. And I was interested in, my interest was piqued by a review that Sarah Lyle wrote of the book for the Times. I'd heard of Sophie Hanna, but it was just one of those names that I I didn't really know what she wrote or what her specialty was. And uh, Sarah Lyle, who I think is one of the smartest uh, readers and reviewers, both inside and outside the the building, had good things to say about it. And I trust Sarah. So I'm reading it. And I have to say, I read it as I walked on the way to the office. I am at the climactic scene. Um, What are you uh, doing here? What am I doing here is right. I would rather be reading. Um, but uh, this, is, I guess, is second best to that. So. What, what about the outside world? What's on the bestseller list this week? Uh, there's only one new title on either list this week. In fact, uh, it's on the nonfiction list down at number 15. Uh, it's another Trump book. Um, this is sort of a biography. Uh, it's sort of a rush job biography, if I can say so. Um, you can, because it's by two people from the Washington Post. <laughs> it, it is. It's by a couple of editors at the Washington Post. Michael Cranish and Mark Fisher have written a book called Trump Revealed. It's funny, only one new book on the list. It's kind of a quiet before the big fall season starts in earnest next yes. week or the week after. I'm sure we'll see a lot of familiar names coming yeah. up. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks Pamela. Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.